Welcome to Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. I'm your host, Lindsay Claiborne, and together with our guests, we'll uncover and share stories from real HR professionals and dive into how they succeeded and sometimes failed in leading their people and organizations toward new ways of working. The role of HR has drastically changed. In today's world, HR is no longer just an administrative function. It is a key business driver. HR leaders are standing at the forefront of their organizations, navigating new challenges, and leading major shifts in everything from recruitment, total rewards, engagement, retention, leadership, and more. In order to stay ahead of what works for their businesses, HR leaders are tapping into new ways of thinking and leading. I can't wait to share our dynamic and in-depth conversations with you. Remember, change is inevitable. Transformation is influential. Alrighty, so I'm joined today with Leah Carr from Pillar. Leah, I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast as one of our very first guests on transformation. So I was wondering if we could start off with you telling us a bit about your company, Tiller, and what inspired you to venture into the realm of talent solutions. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to tell you a little bit about Tiller. So we're a learning and development platform, but we have a bit of a different spin on it, which is that it's all based on skills, understanding your own skills from a company perspective, understanding the skills of your workforce, and then being able to direct people and companies and people leaders with how do we set someone up for success? How do we invest in their continued success? And how do we help this person grow their career within the needs of the company? We think it's really important to align all those things. And the reason I love this space is, you know, throughout my career, done a lot of different roles in a bunch of different industries and companies. You know, the common theme that's always driven me and kept me really excited has been people leadership. I love playing, you know, a small role in helping someone else succeed, enabling others success. And so when I got to Tiller and started talking to the market, I thought, wow, there seems to be like a gap here. And with what Tiller already had in Nigelian, I thought we could really solve it. And so here we are. That's amazing. I like what you said about alignment and aligning the skills and leadership of an organization in order to to make it successful. And throughout your experience, you said been at a lot of different organizations from what I've seen, early stage scale up organizations in a variety of roles. How has that for you shaped your leadership style? How have you had to align the way you lead to these different environments? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, especially because I've gone from like your smaller startup environments into the big corporate banking environments. And, you know, I just deep down truly believe that if you're going to be a people leader, you have to genuinely care about the success of others. And I've seen not as much of that as I would have liked to have seen over the the course of my career. And so, you know, I think what's really shaped my leadership style has been the types of leaders that I've worked for and the types of leaders I've worked with. And, you know, you pick up along the way things you really like. For example, Bimo, the last person I worked for, I thought he had a really great leadership style, which is he, the way he'd ask you questions. So, you know, you'd come to a meeting. And he would ask you a bunch of questions and you wouldn't have the answers. And then the next week you'd come back to that same meeting prepared to answer all those questions, but he wouldn't ask you those questions again. He'd ask you other questions. And then as time went on, he was asking less and less because he knew how prepared you are. 
And, you know, all along he had been training you and coaching you without you even knowing. And I thought that was a really nice approach of how to teach people. But then I've also seen people leaders that I've had that use like a bullying tactic. You know, I had one boss who would sort of threaten me and I tried telling them like, this doesn't work for me. You know, you're actually demotivating me, but they couldn't switch that style off. And so I'd say like one of the things I really picked up over the course of my career is that if you're going to be a really strong people leader, you have to be able to adapt your style a little bit to the people you're leading because everyone deserves to be led in the way that motivates them the most. And so you really have to learn to, you know, sense from people what's going to be the best and also just ask them. I don't think enough people leaders are comfortable saying to their team, like, tell me what I can do better. Tell me what would help you succeed. And so, you know, those are some things I've picked up along the way. Yeah. What you said there about needing to adapt your style is so true. And I think even more so now that we're in a time where there's so much change happening, we see the change with the way that organizations are structured, specifically with more distributed teams, the rise of remote work. How do you think those pressures are shaping the types and, I guess, depth of skills that leaders are needing to exemplify nowadays to be successful? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. You know, being remote is harder as a people leader, not not as much with your direct team, but a little more with your extended team. When the world went forced remote with the beginning of the pandemic, I was at BMO and I was leading a team of about, about 400 people. Only about, you know, half a dozen of those were reporting directly to me. And when you're in person, you can walk the floor. And I would do that I would try to do it a couple times a day. You have casual conversations. People chat with you. You run into someone in the bathroom. You run into someone, you know, at the elevator and you're having those informal conversations. And then when we went remote, I noticed very quickly that I was barely exposed to anyone beyond like the level of leaders that reported to me and the level of leaders that reported to them and like a few others who would be brought in for, it was a technical team, so highly technical discussions. And that to me was the biggest challenge. Like how do you maintain those relationships because you want to identify talent. You want to make sure that the whole team is being invested in your growing the right people, um, especially in that case. I definitely lacked women on that team. And you know, I wanted to make sure that I was maintaining those relationships. So I think it's hard to adapt. Like, I don't know that I've quite figured it out. You know, what I would do is try to book those one-on-ones, try to, you know, have a little bit of social hours, although social remote on video, I, I still find it a little bit awkward. But definitely yeah. you make more of an effort. I think that's the bigger thing we all need to remember is for me, as I mentioned, like women was a, a big you know area I wanted to invest in because we did not have a lot on the team. And so I really made sure that I was doing those one-on-one meetings, seeking feedback, making sure that you know the women on the team were set up with mentors, Um, And I think on mentorship, that's another thing you can do. It's going to be impossible with a large team to do those one-on-ones with every single person. I mean, you have, you know, upwards of 100 plus people. It's not realistic. So making sure you have robust mentorship programs in place can be a really great way. Making sure that you're really connecting as a leadership team on having those discussions about how are people doing? Who's struggling? What can we do to help them? You know, who's really thriving? What can we do to move them to the next level? And just making sure that this is something that's top of mind for you and your team all the time. But I haven't figured it out yet. I'm still learning. And um, our team here is hybrid. So I do luckily get to see people a couple times a week. 
It sounds like you have unlocked the power of intention and being intentional with the way that we work and how we're using our time within our day-to-day and as leaders to make sure that we're focusing on the right thing. Yeah, I think it's important to be intentional. I think, you know, if you're leading people, your number one job is the success of those individuals. Obviously, you have your own deliverables, but the team is delivering that and you're supporting people in helping achieve that goal. And so I think if you're not being intentional about the success of people, it'll be really hard for you to succeed in the deliverables of what you have as a team. I would agree with that. So my next question for you is really around how can or how does HR need to be more intentional with how it is shaping its leadership development initiative within their organization? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting as a learning and development platform, I can tell you more anecdotally than factually, the big chunk of the customers we chat with, like leadership development and training is their number one. They want to get their leaders trained before they want to get everyone else trained because we're we're behind, I think, just as a society in people leadership training because we've been pushing people into people leadership roles in order to grow their career. You know, we don't have enough senior level sole contributor roles, which is, by the way, as an aside, like something I think we need to do better at because not everyone wants to be a people leader. Not everyone can be a people leader and we shouldn't be forcing people into that when they're really talented at what they're doing. You know, in terms of training... I think, first of all, like we have to take a step back and say, like, who has the skills to be a people leader? And I think we need to provide training before we put someone in that role. And so I think it's really important to say this person is showing leadership qualities. Let's let them indirectly lead a project or indirectly lead a few people. Let's get them mentoring. Like, let's start giving those skills before we put people into a role. I think you can learn leadership through courses and everything. So, you know, adding that in is important, but I think the organic, actually hands-on experience as a people leader is really important. And once you've done that experiment with someone, I think then you'll know, is this person going to be able to lead people? And more importantly, that person will know, is this something I actually want to do? Because I'm sure we all know people who have taking that leap into people leadership. And then they're like, I hate this. Like, I hate the admin. I hate that I don't have to lean to, you know, sit at my computer and do work. And so I think it's really good on both ends. So, and I think this is true of a lot of things. We tend to like internal mobility is such a big thing right now. And it should be, I think it's great. But to me, we just do it backwards. We're like, let's move someone into a role and then let's try to invest in them and set them up for success. Whereas I think we have to do a little bit of let's invest first and then let's move. I think that's better for the person to know that they're going to the right place and to feel ready and set up when they get there so that they can succeed. How can organizations, specifically HR leaders that are tasked with with owning these initiatives, make an effective case for investing in these programs and if needed, the training and tools to support that development before somebody moves into a role because there can be fears that an individual may get that training, that mentorship, and then decide not to go into that leadership role. So from your perspective, how can we make an effective case for investing ahead of moving someone into a people leader? I think one, like what's worse, investing in someone and they don't go into a people leader role or putting someone in a people leader role where they don't succeed 
And now you've affected the, I don't want to say careers, but you've probably affected the productivity and happiness of of many people. So I think one, there's that framing of it. Um, I think the other piece of it is, I think we need to reframe the way we're thinking about learning and development in general, which is that we know, I think we all know, the number one reason people leave their jobs, it's lack of development. It's not money, not uninspiring leaders, although that is number two and three, but number one is lack of development. And our answer has been, great, let's have learning and development perks. People want to learn, let's give them each $500, $1,000. And then, you know, we do that. And then finance and leadership is coming to HR and they're like, oh, but we gave everyone 500 to 1,000 and no one's learning anything relevant and we're not seeing any benefits. And it's like, okay, because we're not being intentional about it. You know, back to being intentional, here's somewhere we really should be intentional. And so I think what HR should be doing is actually starting to understand, you know, what are the skills that each role is needed? And I think this is another disconnect because the way people leaders generally write job descriptions, and I'm guilty of this, I think we all do it. You know, I'm hiring a marketing manager. I go on Google and I'm like, marketing manager, job description. And then I like pull up six take what sounds good out of them. But I don't actually stop to think about, are those pieces I pulled actually related to the skills I need someone to bring in? So I think we first need to sit down and think about, okay, what are the actual skills someone needs to succeed in this role? And then we need to actually understand the skills of the individual. And then HR will be able to say to leadership, like, here are the skills gaps we have. Here is what, you know, here are the learning paths for these people that we want to move into these roles. Now you know the skills, you can understand the training programs, and then you can better link content, whether it's e-learning or you're sending people to continuing education, you actually know what people need. And so I think then you can also go back after three months, six months, a year and say, okay, we spent X, here are the skills gaps we closed, here are the learning paths we completed, here are the promotions that led to, and here's fully, you can also say it how we've increased retention because it really should be. Because I think if we're investing in people to retain them, if that's one of our main goals, if you're allowing people to just go take courses for whatever they want, you might actually be pushing them further to leave because someone might go out and learn how to do TikTok ads and then come back and say, oh, I learned how to do TikTok ads. Like I want to do this for the company. But if you as a company don't want to advertise on TikTok, that person is probably one, going to be frustrated because they wasted their time. And two, maybe they're going to leave and go try to do that somewhere else. So if you are able to find the gaps, align the goals with the needs, I think you'll have a way better argument as HR. And I know that's what HR wants because I talk to HR people all day long and it's one of the most passionate groups who just cares so much about the success of people and the company. And I think it's a group that doesn't often have the tools either because they don't exist or they don't have the budget. And this is a really nice way showing how the investment in L&D is contributing to the success of the company. That's such a powerful framework. And I think it distills nicely a phrase that we hear so often, especially nowadays in the HR space, which is data-driven HR. And what you just described is a really nice framework for actually applying and, and deriving those insights from the initiatives that you're put, putting in place and questioning traditional approaches to something such as L&D. And I'm curious, what other ways do you think that HR leaders need to think sort of non-traditionally or out of the box as we move forward with not only the evolutions of our own organizations, but the evolutions of the world that are, are shaping the people that are coming into our organization? That's a really hard question. 
Um, you know, it's funny. On one hand, I think sometimes HR needs to think more traditionally. And, you know, I've experienced this in a couple of, especially the startups I've been in, where I see that we have your more non-traditional things, like we've got the great snacks and we've got the yoga and we've got massages once a month, but then we don't have like a fair and equal way to give out bonuses. So I think most importantly is like, we got to cover the basics before you go into any of the fun stuff. But when it comes to thinking non-traditionally, I think if you are able to get data, like we have a customer, for example, who, you know, they're using our platform. So they understand the skills people have, the skills people want, the skills people need. And now they do like skill of the month and they've done like a company-wide training around them because they can see like what is the number one skill people in this organization aspire to have. And then they do a training around it and they really bring everyone into it. So I think that's sort of a non-traditional way where you made learning and development fun. You've also made it a team building experience and this is a remote team. So it's also a great way to bring people together. So I think if you have data on skills specifically, there's a lot you can do. You know, another thing you can do, which is completely non-traditional is, and I go back to BMO all the time, you know, I had 400 people, but everyone always wanted the same like six or seven people on my team to do things for them. Why? They were known, they were loud, they were really extroverted. But the truth is I had so many amazing people on that team. And so when you understand skills, you can actually go in and, and search your employee database based on skills. And so I think this is a great thing HR can bring where it's like, okay, let's just stop asking these. Every company has it, whether it's three people or six people, they're getting asked to do everything. And forget the fact that you're overloading them and burning it out. Honestly, some of them may actually like it because they want to be asked to do everything, but it's so not fair because you have all these other people who are trying to prove themselves. They want exposure to leadership. They want the opportunity to work with other teams. They want to expand you know, their knowledge and their contributions. And so I think another thing HR can really add is like, let's, you know, as these projects and tasks pop up, like give HR a day to like figure out, you know, who may be the right person. And, you know, the other piece of that is we always say learning and development. In my experience and from everyone I talk to, most people are doing a lot of learning. There's not a lot of development happening. And so with the data and the tools, and if you are aligning those employee goals the company needs ahead of time, you also can start making sure that when someone goes out and learns something, there is work waiting for them when they get back so they can use those skills because that's what you need for development. You know, set them up with a mentor, set them up with pieces of work, make sure they're using those skills. That sounds really simple and obvious, but it's not being done. And I think that's a pretty game-changing thing that HR can start doing. I think that way that you just described the difference between learning and development, even for myself, is not one that I've given a lot of thought to. And the way you just described it seems almost so obvious that just because we learn something doesn't mean that we have the opportunity or have the support to actually be able to apply it within our organization. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, we hear the term agile being thrown around a lot, especially in the tech world. How do you see the link between skill development, learning, and the ability for organizations to be agile or just be able to respond to change more effectively? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I think very few organizations are like purely agile by the agile manifesto. It's, you know, a hard thing to stick to. But I think being adaptable, which is what you're asking about, is obviously so important, um, especially if you're a small company. 
because 10 customers might ask for the same thing one day and you're like, oh man, we got to get this out this week. What are we derailing? Do we have the right skills? And so I think the future and evolution of this, and it's something we've started thinking about, is tying in learning and development to your workforce management tools. So maybe you're using Jira, maybe you're using Asana, maybe you're using like Monday.com, like any of these, and being able to you know, if you're using those tools effectively and you are planning six months out, eight months out, maybe if you're, you know, a big bank, you're actually planning three or five years out. And then being able to look at what's going to need to be done, what the skills you're going to need to do that. And now you're forward thinking, looking at your workforce and saying not just, okay, do we have the skills to get this work done? But you're also saying, who are the right people to invest in? Who are the people who want to grow in this way? And so you can become a lot more adaptable if you get accustomed to investing in the internal workforce because I'm sure you've seen a lot of this something pops up you outsource it oh we don't have anyone who can do this let's outsource it oh we don't have anyone. well one that slows you down because you have to find the person you're outsourcing it to um, it's expensive because often contractors cost a lot more money and so if you instead can get accustomed to finding the right person giving them the training investing in them and then letting them have their hand at things I think you'll find that that will allow your organization to actually move a lot faster. I think it will also create an amazing culture. You know, when I was at CoinSquare, I think one of the things that was magical about our culture in the beginning was, you know, in the early days of crypto, there weren't a ton of people who wanted to work in it, but the people who wanted to work in crypto really wanted to work in crypto. And, you know, when we were interviewing in those early days, I'm not even sure I ever even looked at a resume. It was like someone came in for a role we had and was like, I really want to do this. They would tell us, here's why I want to do it. Here's why I think I can do it. And then we'd give people a shot at proving themselves and being accountable. And you'll find that this is what almost everyone wants. They want to prove that they can do something they know they can do. Not that what their resume says they can do, not what their experience says they can do, but what they want to do and know they can do. And then people want that accountability. And at CoinSquare, everyone got it because we were so busy. We couldn't grow fast enough. And that created this amazing culture, especially in those early days. And so I think if you start bringing a bit of that to your team saying, yeah, you want to try something new? We need you to try something new. Like we're going to make this happen. There'll be an adjustment period. But once that's a part of your culture, I think only great things can happen. I like what you said about accountability. Oftentimes we look at, from my perspective, the accountability for learning and development to be an HR driven. It sounds like in your experience, putting the accountability on the individual to drive their own path forward in terms of what they want to learn and how they want to develop has produced better results and really empowered people and brought a lot of success to a company. Yeah, I think the accountability is on three people or three teams, but like number one to me is the individual because you should at least have this. I mean, not everyone knows what they want, but like if you're not willing to put in the work, why should anyone invest in you? I mean, that's number one. Um, but next, I think it's on the people leader. Like this is your job, like help your people figure out what they want, help guide them in the right direction, let people test and experiment and understand what your team needs and understand who on your team are the best people to invest in to fill those gaps. And then, yeah, HR obviously plays a role. I mean, it's HR that's going to get the budget. And it's HR that's going to bring it all together at the end of the day and show the company how, you know, the culture of learning and the investment in people is paying off. But I think it's about everyone. And that's an important 
important piece of how we've built our our platform, which you've seen. You know, we've made it low touch for HR. We've made it so that if you are working for a great people leader who understands that they should be investing in and growing their team, it's an awesome tool. But not everyone works for a great people leader. So we've really made sure that we've built that bottom-up approach as well so that every individual also has the tools to grow their career within the company. And I think you need all three pieces to be successful. But like the fourth piece was, which I didn't talk about and is actually like a make or break is leadership. Unfortunately, like everything, it comes from top down. If you don't have a culture of learning and your leaders aren't bought into the success that a real L&D program can bring to your company, very hard for it to succeed. And it doesn't take a lot for leadership to be bought in. It's little things like you listen to a podcast on the weekend and at a stand up, you say, oh, I listened to this podcast and here's what I learned. I wanted to share it with you. Or you read a book and then you recommend it to the marketing team because it was a marketing book. Or even better, if someone who's in leadership took a Coursera course and then tells the company about it because one of the big blockers in L&D is individuals don't feel like the company actually wants them to take time out of their day to learn. And so you need to be talking about it um, or you can take a step further and say like, we expect everyone in the company to block whatever it is, an hour a week, two hours a week to learn or Friday afternoons are L&D time. Like there's different ways you can do it. You know, different things will work for different companies, but you have to make sure that that's coming from the top or it's it's hard to succeed with these programs. It sounds like there's almost a scale of different methods you can implement. You can start, as you said, small. And just with repetition, those small actions can lay the foundation for a really strong L&D culture at an organization. What about the communities within companies that how does either within organizations or outside of organizations, how does community influence our personal growth and our professional growth? So I, I love that question. I'm, I'm on the board of an organization called PeerScale, which is a peer network for tech CEOs and executives. And we're actually just at the annual retreat last year. And it is like one of the best investments that I think someone can make in themselves. Um, the way this works is you're a member of a roundtable with peers who are in companies at similar size and stage to you, and you meet monthly and you really just like listen to people's problems, listen to their successes. You get to benefit from both. You come with problems you're having, you get a bunch of input. Ultimately, this organization is all about learning from each other. At the retreat, a lot of people get up. We had people teach about sales, people teach about marketing, about remote work, about diversity and inclusion. That's been obviously a, a, a big an important theme. And I think having that community outside of your company can be really important because sometimes you need an outside perspective. Sometimes you want to learn what someone has done without any bias of the internal, you know, politics or customers or, you know, whatever might be happening. So I think having that extended community is important. But I also think the internal community is important. And again, it depends on size of organization. You know, in a bigger organization, I think it's really important to match people with mentors outside of their area. You know, if you're in tech, maybe you want a business mentor. If you're in business, maybe you want a marketing mentor. I think like developing that mentorship community is really important. And I think also just safe space communities are really important. You know, um, at, at BMO, I mentioned there weren't a lot of women. Coinsquare, we had sort of a similar thing. And so we would do a monthly or bi-monthly meetup where just women could come and you know, discuss whatever it is they wanted to discuss. Um, I think all of that is so important. And I think just generally in life, community is is a really valuable thing to be a part of. Absolutely. 
You mentioned mentorship a handful of times throughout our conversation. I'm curious, what are the fundamental pieces that need to be in place in order for a mentorship program within an organization to to be successful? Yeah, I think first of all, you need to be open to the fact that almost anyone can be a mentor. Like we all have something to teach, whether you're a more entry-level employee early in your career or you've been around for a while, things change. And we get a lot of people saying, well, we only want senior people mentoring junior people. And I always ask why. I mean, your more experienced people built their career while technology was growing. You know, those of us who are more in the millennial, we've kind of straddled both worlds. People who are just coming into the workforce, like they never knew life without technology. And often they're really better at a lot of things than those of us who didn't build our careers that way. And so one, I think open-mindedness is absolutely the most important. And then understanding that mentorship is not just about one individual teaching something to another individual. It's also about the mentor. The mentor is gaining leadership experience. The mentor is gaining, you know, even maybe some like comfort with speaking and giving advice. Like there's just so many benefits from it. But ultimately you have to have a little bit of formality to it. Like put a little bit of structure around it. How often should mentors meet? How should meetings be documented? making sure at the beginning that you're listing goals. You know, what is it that you want to get out of this mentorship? What is it you want to get out of each meeting? The mentor, the mentees should be taking notes in each meeting. I've mentored people and every month they're coming and asking me the same question. And I'm like, okay, like you're great, but we talked about this. Like if you had notes that you could refer back to, like we building, you want to make sure that people can build. And also just knowing like mentorships end and not making it awkward. So setting a time frame, like this mentorship is going to last quarter. Every quarter, we're going to switch mentors or we're going to have mentorship. We're going to take a quarter off. We're going to swap. You just have to have the boundaries around it and also have someone running the program who you can go talk to who's not biased, completely impartial, because it's not always going to it's not always going to work out well. Um, but most fundamentally, you have to first understand what is it the mentees want to get out of the mentorship? Because if you're just like... Hey, well, this person is a junior marketing person and this person is a senior marketing person. So that's a good mentor match. It's not really going to work because that marketing, the junior marketing person probably has a people leader that already can help them with those marketing skills. Maybe they're considering exploring a career in product and they want to mentor in product. So really like understanding people's goals doing mentor matches is also super important. That's fantastic. So we're coming to the end, which means that we're going to go into our lightning round. So I have three lightning round questions. If you can answer them, either one word or one sentence, and we'll get started. So first lightning round question, what is the number one thing that you think HR leaders need to transform their thinking on? I think it's HR basics. Number two, what is the most impactful piece of feedback you've ever received? Don't work overtime from day one. That is a good one. It's just setting expectations. I was just say, yeah, if you're working overtime and you don't need to be working overtime, like then when you actually need to be working overtime, you're just going to be working crazy. So yeah, mm-hmm. setting expectations. That's probably a better way to say it. Yeah, making sure we're reserving our our energy for the times when we really we really need it. That's right. Okay, last one. How much of your journey is made up of failures and how much of your journey is made up of successes? Oh, like 80% failures, probably. Both me and the companies. How? You learn more from failure than you learn from success. What is one lesson that stands out in your mind from a failure? That you can't let things get you down. You have to keep pushing for what you believe in. I can elaborate on that if you want me to. (laughs) Yes. 
please elaborate on that. Yeah, I, I had a boss who was a bully. And instead of advocating for not allowing this type of leadership in the company, I let it get me down. And it affected the culture of the whole company because it wasn't just me and this person. And I think if I hadn't let it get me down and I had brought it up that I could have maybe stopped what I'll call a bigger disaster from from happening. Well, that is a great lesson and I think a great place for us to end. So Leah, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing so much about leadership, skill development, learning within our organization, all of which are contributing to the transformations that we're seeing both in organizations and in HR today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This was so fun. This has been Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. To find out more about Cardata's vehicle reimbursement software tailored for HR professionals, visit cardata.co and see how you could benefit from a fully managed reimbursement program.